Father, we worship you. We glorify you. We exalt your name today. Thank you, Lord, for just waking us up today to get into fellowship, to get into your word, to worship you, to um, hear from you, Lord. I pray that we would lay our burdens, our anxieties, our worries, our hurts, our sin. May we lay it all at the foot of the cross, Lord, and come to you into your throne boldly, but also humbly, Lord, receiving what you have for us, receiving forgiveness, receiving peace, receiving joy, receiving encouragement, Lord, from you. So would you lift our hearts today? May we set our minds on things above, not on things of this earth, Lord. Help us to rejoice in the joy of our salvation, Lord. May it just increase daily in our lives and not be clouded out by the things of this world. Help us to love you, Lord, with our whole hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. So, Lord, please take um, what is said today, Lord. May we take it. May we receive it. May we humbly go out into this world and live for you. May we live in our homes for you and our church for you and the world for you. So speak to our hearts, Lord. Bless this message. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the title of today's teaching is Taking Responsibility. Taking Responsibility. And just right at the forefront of this, I, you know, every message I put together is first and foremost for me. I actually joked with Leah last night, maybe even this morning, I said, this message is for you, honey. And she already knew kind of the theme of the message. So it was somewhat in jest, but some of it's for her. Some of it's going to be applied to me, and hopefully you're going to all get something from this message. But when we look back at the beginning of creation, when we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, taking responsibility has been a challenge for humanity since the very beginning. And we know the account there in Genesis. We know the story. God created Adam, and he took out of his side a rib, and there's he breathed into Eve the breath of life, and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he said, you can have whatever you want to eat from this garden. Go to town. Any tree, any plant, it's all yours. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours. And then here comes the serpent. He's more crafty than any beast in the field. And what does he do? He deceives Eve. He gets her to doubt God, doubt God's goodness. Has God really said this and that? She starts looking at the tree, looking at the fruit. She partakes of the fruit. We know the story. She gives it to Adam, her husband. He partakes of the fruit as well. And here we are today, right? <laughs> here we are today with sin and disease and war and division and death. Thank you, Adam and Eve. And so, you know, and if we were there, we, we would have done the same thing, most likely, right? So, but we see that God confronts Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He confronts them for their sin. And when he confronts them, do they say, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, God. We, we have sinned greatly. Does Eve say, I have sinned, Lord, against you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Wash me anew, Lord. I'm sorry. And then when Adam is rebuked by the Lord, does he say, does he take responsibility and say, Lord, I, I sinned against you, Lord. I am a, I'm a wicked man. I deserve death. Please, Lord, forgive me. Does he, does he cry out to him in, in, humble, in his humble response for forgiveness? No, right? Adam, of course, blames his wife. The woman you gave me, she did this and that. 
You get to Eve. She blames the serpent. The serpent, he, he deceived me. So right from the very beginning, they're both, they're both blame shifting on to something else, someone else. They, they were unable to take responsibility before the Lord. Owning up to our own sin, our own shortcomings, our own faults and failures is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It's a hit on our pride. It's a hit on our flesh. Our flesh screams out, no, I, I didn't do it, or I'm okay, or they made me do it, or they're wrong. That's from our spiritual forefathers, Adam and Eve. That's what they did. We're speaking like them. We all need to grow in this area. Listen to Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. I don't usually say stupid very often, especially around my kids, but when it's in the word of God, there it is. If you hate correction, if you hate reproof, God says you're stupid. And right when we're pointing one finger at someone else, there's three pointing right back at us. So, you know, I was thinking about why am I so bad at cooking? I'm a really bad cook. And I think it's because it's hard for me to take correction in the kitchen. Leah says, don't cook your eggs like this. Don't do this. And I'm just like, I got this. Okay. Like I'm good. I have this. And it always turns out wrong when I say that. And now my, my kids won't eat my food anymore. I used to cook them eggs in the morning. They literally say, I want mommy's eggs. I don't want your food. So I've given up on that. I cut up Mercy and Apple now and almond butter, and that's her little morning snack. I don't make the eggs. Leah does. So that's just my confession. I need to, okay, honey, it's something so simple as making some eggs. I don't do it right. Okay, Nick, humble yourself. I don't like reproof. I don't like correction. Perhaps you feel the same way at times. So we've been making our way through the book of Colossians. You know, it's this rich letter full of theology in chapters 1 and 2, and we've, we've made it to chapter 3. We're closing out chapter 3. Hopefully that was the goal today, but I'm not going to quite close it out yet today. But chapter 3, is it's all practical. It's all daily living. It's all the imperatives of Scripture. It's do this, don't do that. This is, this is what we are responsible to do as believers and there's a verse in this passage that we're going to read in a couple minutes here that if you're a married man, you're going to say, preach that verse, brother. Preach that verse. Yep, hit it home until my wife hears this. And if you're a married woman in this room, then there's also another verse in this passage, and you're going to say, preach, preach it. Make sure my husband hears this. Preach it over and over again. Make sure he gets it. And if you're single in the room, you're going to be wondering where you're at in the story. But maybe next week you'll find, you'll find a place in this passage. But this is mostly for married couples today. It's mostly for married people. So if, if you're single, then you're going to want to aspire. If you're a man, you're going to want to aspire the husband's role. And if you're a, a woman, you're going to want to aspire the wife's role in what we're talking about today. So before I read the text, a story came to my mind from my own past, and, and it correlates to what I'm talking about today. And it goes like this. I was driving to school. I was in college. I was maybe 18, 19 years old. This was a long time ago. 
and um okay 20 years ago or so feels like a long time that is a long time but i'm driving to school more park college i had a friday morning weightlifting class five o'clock or six o'clock eric blackwell was there as well he didn't like going he hid in the back i remember i actually tried to work out um but anyhow he was better for it and so i'm on the way to this weightlifting class it's 5 30 5 a.m i don't remember it's dark out there's no one on the roads i'm a mile away from moore park college and i look in my rearview mirror and there's just someone on my tail and they're just on my tail for a half mile they're still on my tail and i'm like there's two lanes here i'm going over the speed limit like go do something else like i'm getting frustrated i'm already irritable i don't want to be awake for this weightlifting class and the closer i get to moore park college they're still on my tail well, there's a stop sign, and then you pull into the parking lot where the weightlifting class is, and I said, I'm going to show them. I'm just going to burn right through this stop sign. And somehow I thought that was me showing them. I don't know how that – I was just angry. I'm blowing through the stop sign. I blow through the stop sign, and who approaches me right behind me in the parking lot? Campus patrol, campus police. There they are to say license and registration and give me a ticket. Now – did they care that I was angry and that this person was tailgating me for a mile and I'm telling them I can't believe people drive like that and they're just like, you blew through the stop sign, here's your ticket. And so I was unwilling to take responsibility, right? And the Lord throughout my college years, I got a lot of tickets in college. I got in like four accidents, I almost lost my insurance. My mom was really mad at me. You ask her about it. She'll tell you all the stories of all my accidents and whatnot. Thank the Lord I haven't got tickets or accidents in many years since then. But the Lord was disciplining me over and over again until I finally started to get it. Nick, it's time to grow up. It's time to take responsibility. It's time to keep, it's time to stop blaming things on other people. So when we're reading the text for today, we want to find Where's our spot in this text? It's so easy in marriage to look at the other person. I was really bad at this at the beginning of my marriage, and I've gotten better, but it was so easy. You did this. You did that. If you didn't do that, I wouldn't have done this. If you'd and it's so easy for us to do that when God's saying, what's your role? What's your responsibility? Can you focus on yourself, and I'll deal with the other person? So hard to do for all of us, at least for me. Colossians 3:18 through 25 is what we're reading today. As I mentioned, I don't know that I'm going to get through all of it. Actually, I know I'm not going to get through all of it. 18 and 19 is what we're focusing on, but just for context, Colossians 3:18 it says, "Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them." Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters. On earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 
For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Do you find yourself in the passage? Thankfully, slavery was done away with, so no one's in that category. One-third of the Roman Empire was slaves, and perhaps next week we'll talk more about that. Doctors, teachers, lawyers, many people that maybe have more wealth today or prominence in culture were actually slaves back then. And it's a different type of slavery than what we think of in America, but nevertheless, as Christianity continued to permeate the hearts and minds of people around the known world, slavery was done away with. But as I mentioned, we're looking at primarily verses 18 and 19. But if you're a husband and if you're a father, you actually have two verses in the text. Verse 19, husbands love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. Verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children. So you, we have the load on us, right? As husbands, as fathers, God places more things on us. We're to take the lead. He evens things out by starting with women. Wives, verse 18, be subject to your husband, to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And there's very little controversy, I'm sure, over verse 18 in our culture today, right? Wrong. Um, A lot of controversy over verses like that one and similar verses in Ephesians and 1 Peter 3. I'm going to do my best to flesh some of this out today, not exhaustively. The more I started to look at this, I was like, should I spend a whole week just on verse 18 and then another week just on verse 19? And I felt like the the ladies might think that's unfair to just hit them hard with one verse all day today. And so I, I split it up and did, I, I went half and half, roughly half the message on Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And the last half will save the men for last as we hammer home. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. It's a pretty simple outline in the text. Wives, verse 18, here's your responsibilities. Husbands, verse 19. Children, fathers, verse 21, slaves, verse 22, and then he even talks about masters in chapter 4, verse 1, which most commentators would put back in chapter 3 instead of starting a new chapter because it's going along the lines of all these responsibilities in society, in the family structure even. So the first one we're looking at today, the first responsibility, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Fitting in the Lord there. The Greek word for fitting is aneko. Fitting. We see the same exact Greek word used in Ephesians 5, 4. There must be no silly talk, chorus justing, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. These things are not fitting. Chorus justing, silly talk, these kind of things, they don't fit. He's saying, when you are subject to your husband, this is fitting to the Lord. This fits. If you're not, it's unfitting. And I thought of the illustration of, and I have weird illustrations lately, forgive me, but hopefully this kind of makes sense. If you're a man and you wear an extra large shirt, let's say, well, that's what fits you. You try to get into a small and walk around with a small shirt, it's unfitting. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to frustrate you. I used to do that when I worked out. Used to try to wear really small shirts. Look at how strong I am. 
people would always make fun of me and I'm like, I like my shirts tight. But <laughs> when you, so I'm trying to get these verses to stick in your mind, okay? So maybe when you read this verse later on in your mind, this is what you're going to think of. A man who wears an extra large walking around in a small and he's just all day frustrated. This is just, this is irritable. This is frustrating. And I think that's what God's saying. Women, when, when you subject yourself to your husband, when you do what I'm calling you to do, I know it's at times you don't think it's right, but don't believe me. The Lord's saying it's good and it's fitting. And if you don't do it, it's going to be like that man who's wearing that shirt that's all tight and irritable. You're, you're going to be frustrated. You're, you're, you're going to have division. You're going to have problems. But when you do it, it's going to bring peace. It's going to bring joy, though it's going to be hard. We need to remember that verse 17 and 23 sandwich the text that we're looking at today. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father all these commands that he gives to children and wives and husbands and so forth need to be done with thanksgiving. They need to be done heartily, verse 23 of chapter 3. Whatever you do, do it all heartily unto the Lord. So we need to fight to be thankful. We need to fight to be joyful. We don't do the commands. They shouldn't be burdensome. shouldn't be like, oh, I have to do this because God told me I have to love my wife. She's being a real booger today. That's the word we use in our home. Just being a booger, I got to love her, you know, because God told me to. No, Lord, I, I, you're, you're my all in all, Lord. You saved me. You sustained me. You give me life. You pulled me up out of the muck and mire. I deserve death. I don't deserve anything. Lord, thank you so much. I want to serve you, Lord. H- how can I serve you? How can I honor you? And he goes, okay, love your wife. Just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Or if you're a woman, if you're married, he goes, be subject to your husband. And you're like, okay, Lord, I don't want to, something else. I, I'm here for duty, but something else. He goes, that's what it is. And we have to humbly say, okay, Lord, help me. I want to obey you first and foremost in my life. God is a God of order. When you look at creation, when you look at the universe, when you look at billions of stars, trillions of stars, look the other night, are there more grains of sand on the earth or stars in the sky, and depending on what article you read, most say stars in the universe, not visible stars. You see about a couple thousand, but trillions and trillions and trillions of stars in the universe, yet it's all ordered, amazing order. Physicist Neil Turok said after studying the universe for 30 years, he said, quote, at large scales, it's not chaotic, it's not random, it's incredibly ordered. The universe is ordered. God wants order in the church. He has order in the universe, order in the church, order in the home. That's God's design. He's not the God of confusion. If you read 1 Corinthians 14, it says, let everything be done orderly. It says, God is not the God of confusion. He's God of order. So that's, that's the bedrock. That's underneath all of these commands. Order in the home. If the children aren't obedient to the parents, there's disorder. If husbands aren't loving their wives as they should and laying down their lives for them, there's disorder. If wives aren't subject to their husbands, there's disorder. God is a God of order. So this command, wives, be subject to your husbands, is thoroughly rooted in the structure that God has set up. Christ submits and obeys his father. Philippians 2.8 
1 Corinthians 15, 28, says that Jesus subjects himself to the Father. It starts there. The church, it says in Ephesians 5, 24, subject, subjects itself to Christ. So Christ to the Father, the church to Christ, and then here we see in verse 18, wives to your husband, God of order. Who hates order? Who hates order in the universe? Who hates who hated order from the very beginning? Satan. Satan hates order. He loves chaos. He loves anarchy. He loves division. So he attacks Christ's lordship. He attacks the order of the universe. He attempts to create disorder in the world, in the church, and in the home. And he's pretty good at it. He's been practicing this for thousands of years. He's very good through many different means to create disorder. He's the author of subversion, division, confusion, disorder, death. He's the author of those things. He didn't want to submit to the authority of God. He didn't like the order of that. No, I want to be God. I don't like that I'm underneath God. I want to be God. That's pride, arrogance. So he tried to raise himself up as God. He's still trying today, although he will be defeated. So the same rebellion that was in his heart, he thought, okay, who else can I now bring down? Hence, back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. He used the same tactics with Eve in the garden to try to get her to go outside of the authority of her husband and the authority of God. Get her alone, deceive her, get her where she shouldn't be, tell her and preach to her independence and liberation and freedom, all the while bringing her into subjection and slavery in the entire world with it. Your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. Did God really say that? Doubt God's word. Doubt God's goodness. Look what you can do. Self-centeredness. You're going to be like God. You're going to have this amazing knowledge. So we must remember every command of God is good. Every command is good. Every command brings blessing. Every command brings order. Every command glorifies God. Every command brings peace and joy and fulfillment. And if we believe otherwise, then we're buying in to Satan's lie. And then you say, well, it's hard. You find yourself on the list. You say, it's hard to do what God's calling me to do right there. John 15, 5, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do it. You can't do the commands of God on your own. You need Christ. You need his help. You need less of you. You need more of him. You need to press in to him. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. So when you think, I, I just can't do that. I just can't do this. Yeah, you, you're right. You can't. I can't. I can't love my wife how God calls me to. And you can't either if you're a husband. And wives, you can't submit the way you're supposed to on your own. You need Christ's help. The word submit there in Colossians 3.18, it's actually a military term. Hupo piazzo, or hupo tazzo, sorry. Hupo tazzo, under and arrange. Two words, to arrange under, to place under. It means to fall into rank. Some women might say, well, how unfair it is that I have to be subject or have to submit underneath someone else. And the fact is, if you're a Christian, 
every Christian submits. Every Christian. If you're a godly man, you submit every part of your being to Jesus Christ. You submit to him. You say, Lord, the moment you put your faith and trust in him is the beginning of your journey in life saying, Lord, I'm yours. Paul says in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, doulos. It's the same word used of slave here in Colossians 3.22. Slaves obey your masters. Paul says, I'm a slave. I'm a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. I submit to him. It's the same word used in Philippians chapter 2 where it says that Jesus became a servant. He became a doulos, submitting himself to his heavenly father, saying, not my will, your will be done. I will go down to earth. I will live for you, and I will die a humiliating, brutal death on the cross for the sins of the world. That's true humility. That's true submission. Every time you think of submission, think of Christ and him submitting to his father and giving his life for us. So every husband is to submit to God. And you say, well, my husband doesn't. Well, God's going to deal with that person. God dealt with me for many years as he was disciplining me. And I was the man in Proverbs 12, 1, the stupid man who hated reproof. God had to continue to discipline me until I said, okay, Lord, I'm yours. And he's, that's sanctification. He's constantly working in our hearts and our lives to mold us into the image of Christ. And the more you and I are like Christ, the more humble we are, the more we have submissive hearts. Man to Christ, wife to Christ as well, first and foremost, but also underneath her husband. Did Jesus submit as well in other ways? Luke 2, 51, same Greek word is used there. Hupotadzo, where it says that Jesus willingly subjected himself to Joseph and Mary. He willingly fell into rank. Imagine Jesus, baby Jesus. He's growing up. He's five or six years old, and he knows more than Mary. He knows more than Joseph. He's the author of the scripture that they're reading. They're alive because he's the author of life, and they're telling him what to do. And he has to, he willingly submits to them. How frustrating could that be? Uh, Mom, I already knew that. Mom, let me, sit down, Mom, let me teach you. Open the Old Testament scriptures, let me show you, Mom. That must have been hard raising him. He, I mean, my son, he's always correcting us on everything. Half the time he doesn't know what he's talking about and he's wrong. But Jesus, it's like he knew, he actually did know more. You know, every, most kids think they know more. Jesus did know more. And yet he humbly, led by example, for all of us to show us what submission looks like. Here's another point from Colossians 3.18. Who's the hardest person to submit to in marriage? Who's the hardest man to submit to? It's the man who doesn't submit to the Lord. It's the man who doesn't, who says, no, I'm, I'm not submitting to the Lord. And that's, I think, where some wives are like, I, I'm not submitting to that person. But what does God's word say? That's, that's what's underneath all of that. When we go to the word, and I was talking to Leah last night, and I go, I, you know, I want to get, every time I teach, I want to get it right, you know? We're fallible. We're human. We're, we're reading the Bible 2,000 years later through sometimes through our experiences and our angle and our view. And, and the goal of reading the Bible and 
the big word is exegeting the Bible or proper hermeneutics and all these things they teach in seminaries where I never went, but they want, the, the goal is to understand the Bible. What, what did Paul mean when he wrote this? What did Timothy, what, what did he, what does the scripture mean when Paul wrote Timothy or when, when Peter wrote scripture or any of the authors? What were they trying to say? What are they communicating not what do I feel or wh- what does this mean to me or, or, or in light of culture or no, what does God's word mean? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and perfect for every good work. Equipped for every good work. It's all inspired. We're uninspired. We're fallible. It's infallible. So when we look to God's word, when you say, Lord, help me to understand this, put all of my preconceived notions and feelings aside and say, what does it say? And now help me to live it out, Lord. Help me to please you. Help me to honor you. That's the goal. So who's the person in marriage? Who's the man that's hard to submit to? It's the man who's unkind, unloving, disrespectful, disobedient to the word. In other words, he's not being like Jesus. You say, man, I could submit to Jesus. If he's washing my feet, if he's teaching me, if he's praying for me, if he's loving, if he's patient, he's kind, he's gentle, long-suffering, I could submit to that person. I can't submit to the person who's unkind, who's rude, who's mean. You might, you might be thinking that. Perhaps you have thought that. If you turn to 1 Peter 3, Peter actually helps us out with this. Because I think God knew that that might be a response. He knows that not every man is perfectly like Jesus. And as we read this, most commentators believe it's talking about an unbelieving husband, someone who's not a Christian. But it also applies, I believe, to Christian men like myself who don't add up a thousand percent perfect like Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 3. Let's just read verses 1 through 6. In the same way, you wives, be submissive. There's that word again, hupotazo. Fall into rank, fall under rank. To your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste, and respectful behavior. Let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You see those key words there, even if, verse 1, if, if any of them are disobedient to the word, ladies, this is your response. Win them without a word by your behavior. Win them without a word. That's when you go into humble, quiet service mode. That's when you 
buckle down. That's when you press in all the more. That's when you cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, I need help. I can't do this on my own. Everything in my being, Lord, says do the opposite. Don't serve. Don't be humble. Respond back. If, they, if my husband says this, I'm going to say that. No, this is where you press into prayer. Press into the Lord. Say, Lord, I cannot do this without you. I'm not going to disobey scripture. My husband tells me to disobey scripture. I'm not. I'm not dishonoring you, God. I'm honoring you by serving my husband. It's like serving Jesus himself. That's my goal. And then God says, okay, that's precious in my sight. That's what the text says. This is the precious woman to God. This is beautiful to God. Culture is going to tell you something else. The world's going to tell you something else. Culture is going to say this is foolishness. Quiet and gentle and chaste behavior. Like that, those aren't words that the culture uses. That's, that's archaic. That's Little House on the Prairie. That's Pride and Prejudice days. That's whatever you can think of. That's way back there. We've, we've passed, what is it? We've completed on Monopoly. We've collected our $200. We've passed that. We're done. We're in a new era now. We're, we're in the 2000s, and this is how you live. No, that's not how you live. God's word is inspired. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and this is what God's word says for us. It's a beautiful thing. You're not being a doormat. You're not being weak. You're not being incompetent. This is what strength looks like. This is steadfastness. This is true beauty. This is the fear of the Lord on display. This is the woman who the Lord will reward. When you think of women and their aspirations, Proverbs 31, typically. I want to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Or if you're a godly man, you say, I want to marry a Proverbs 31 woman. And absolutely. But also, I think, if you're a godly woman who fears God, you should say, help me to be a First Peter 3 woman as well. Because this is a place you're going to find yourself in in your marriage. Because you didn't marry Jesus. You married someone, hopefully, who's longing to be like Jesus, who's pursuing Jesus, who wants to be, but doesn't always add up. And that's when you need this text. That's when you need to meditate on this and say, okay, Lord, help me to win him without a word. Help me to go into service mode. Help me to wash his feet just like Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Once again, it's not going to come natural. It's not going to be easy. Less of you, more of him. So I believe that's the woman that God wants all wives to aspire to be. It's his word. It's good. And you, may, you might say, yeah, but I'm, I'm so far beyond my husband in so many ways. And I think Jesus could say that as well when he was a child. I'm so far beyond Mary and Joseph. I know more than them. Like I said, I'm the author of the scripture they're reading. I'm He's, I've upheld everything by the power of my word. I'm God in the flesh. I have to submit to them. And I think if we have that mindset, if we remember that, you're humbly, voluntarily falling into rank. Not Jew nor slave, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. You're a co-heir of Christ. A soldier is no less a soldier than the commander. They're both soldiers, but you fall into rank. 
or else the military is just going to be a complete anarchy and they're not going to overtake anyone. There's an order. If the military can get it right, at least it should, should we be able to get it right in the church and in our homes? That's the goal. Okay, enough with the women. It's our turn now, men, so buckle up, guys. We've got our work cut out for us. Colossians 3, 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. God knew you would be embittered at times. God knew that your wife might make you angry. It's never happened to me in my marriage. I, I joke with Leah sometimes. I'm like, I see something above your head. I'm like, what is that? It's like a halo. And then I married an awesome woman. But even at times in our marriage, she's not perfect. There might be something that she does from time to time that I get bothered by or I get angry. I have to take that to the Lord. You point one finger, you got three pointing back. If you count your thumb, four. There's a lot of things that I could look at and find wrong with her. When I look back at myself, I realize how much I need Jesus. So do not be embittered. You need to treat bitterness, anger, rage like a hot potato. You, want, you, you don't want to hold on to it long. You're going to get burned if you do. You want to get rid of it. You want to give it up to the Lord. So important in marriage. So important for us men. Notice how he doesn't say husband. Husbands love your wives if this. Husbands love your wives if they're kind. Husbands love your wives if they're gentle. Love your wives if they're sweet and kind. If they put on their Sunday's best and don't walk around in old garbage clothes their entire lives. Whatever you can think of. Th that just came to my mind. I don't know why. But it, there's no fine print there. There's no but this. It's husbands love your wives in all circumstances, at all times, no matter what. It's a definite statement with no fine print. Husbands love your wives. When I said I do, I said in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, to love and to cherish till death do us part. It's easy to say on the wedding day, now we need to live it out. You say, that's hard, Nick. That's hard. John 15, 5. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do it in your own strength. You need his help, more of him and less of you. So the text I want to look at is Ephesians chapter 5. As I mentioned, Ephesians is the sister text, if you will, sister letter to Colossians with, I think, over 70 verses of very similar language in the book of Ephesians to Colossians. And for men, we're looking at Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as... Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their wives, their own wives, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. In elementary school, I was taught what's a form of grammar. I guess that's how you would say it. It's called a simile. I never did well in grammar, English, but it's a simile. It's, it's comparing two things using the words like or as. Perhaps you've heard of it. I get all these literary devices mixed up, metaphors and similes and allegories and hyperboles and analogies and whatever else you can think of. They're all one in my mind, illustrations and analogies and metaphors. I don't know which is which, but as far as I understand, comparing two things using the words like or as is a simile. Like that person is as fast as a cheetah. He, he's as strong as an ox. The Webster's Dictionary defines a simile as a figure of speech comparing two unlike things that is often introduced by like or as. And so when you think of Christ, who's creator, he's king, he's God in the flesh, he's perfect, he loves perfectly, has perfect patience, perfect kindness, perfect gentleness, perfect. And then you think of us men and how we're striving to be perfect as Jesus is perfect, as our heavenly father is perfect. We're trying to love perfectly. We're trying to be patient perfectly and with kindness and gentleness and, and so forth. That's what we're pursuing. So in one sense, that's the definition of a simile, comparing two unlike things, unlike Christ in many ways, though trying to be like him. And so what I'm getting at is verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as, like or as. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the kind of love, husbands, you're to have. That's the kind of love I'm to have. Giving my life for my wife, just as Christ did for the church. While we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for a church that was beautiful at the time, a church that was kind to him at the time, a church that was gentle to him at the time. He died for a rebellious church. He died for a people that spit on him that beat him, that mocked him, and that crucified him. So w as husbands, we have to remember that. We have to have that mindset. We have to have the mind of Christ, the mind of humility, the mind of compassion, tenderheartedness, patience, long-suffering, and love. So as husbands, what we would like people to say about us when they see our marriage is, wow, that man loves his wife just as Christ loves the church. That's what you want people to say over you in your marriage. Loving your wives is one of the most important things that you should pursue in your life. It's so important. It's one of the biggest priorities. It's one of the biggest responsibilities that you have in your life to love your wife, to be patient with her, kind. Because you say, well, what is love? That's what the world's saying. What is love? They're, they're defining it in a whole 
myriad of ways, and that's why we're trying to memorize as men 1 Corinthians 13 because that's where it tells us what love is. It gives us more context, more clarity. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Does not brag. Is not arrogant. It's not rude. Does not seek its own. Is not irritable. Does not take into account a wrong suffer. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Love endures all things. If you love your wives as Christ does the church, you endure. You bear it up. You serve. You're patient. You're kind. You're not seeking your own. You're seeking what's good for her. That's constantly at the forefront of your mind. How does this decision affect her? How does this bless her? How can this wash her in the water of the word? How, how does this present her to God? Beautiful, holy, pure. How does this help her alongside me. My goal is to pursue Jesus, to submit to him, and I'm trying to bring her alongside. How can I do that better, Lord? I'm not leaving her back there. I'm bringing her with me. I'm putting her before me. That should be our goal as men. Not only when she's lovable, but when she's at her worst, to love her all the more. Matthew 5:46. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? It's easy to love when we're loved. It's easy to be kind when someone's kind to us. It's easy to be gentle when someone's gentle to us. It's hard to do those things when the other person isn't reciprocating it. That's where we need the Holy Spirit. That's where we need more of Jesus. That's where we need to cry out to him all the more. Matthew 5:44. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's true Christ-like love. Sometimes your enemy can be in your own home. You need to love that person. You need to pray for that person. You need to pursue that person because we are enemies or were enemies before we came to Christ. And he pursued us. As I started, God is a God of order. And there's deep and rich meaning through all of this. He's not just throwing out commands. Husbands do this. Wives do this. It's rooted and grounded in creation. It's rooted and grounded in the gospel. It's rooted and grounded in who Christ is and submitting to the Father and giving his life for the world so that when the husband loves his wife as Christ did the church and the wife is subject to the husband, it's a beautiful display to the church, to the world, to the angels, what Jesus has done for us. It's a display of the gospel. And when we don't get it right, we're not glorifying God. We're not being a witness to God. We're not being the blessing that we can be in our homes and in our families and in our church and in the world around. So it's so important that we get this. And it starts with us. We're the leaders. It starts with husbands. When you read through the Song of Solomon, I haven't read through it in a while, but you see when we're talking about similes, you see similes galore, all this poetic language. Let me just share a couple with you. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Uh, you guys don't talk like this, hopefully. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes. That's just the beginning. There's many, many more. You can read it for yourself. 
But this is like a back and forth, right? This beautiful display of love between Solomon and the Shulamite woman as they're preparing for marriage and they're just going back and forth with this poetic language and almost like they're one-upping each other. No, your temples are like pomegranates. And then it's like, no, but you, and they're going back and forth. And it's, okay, that's, that's, the, that's the wedding ceremony. That's, that's the honeymoon phase. That, that's easy for Solomon to do. That's easy for the Shulamite woman to do. That's, that's a beautiful display of God's love for Israel and God's love for the church. It's beautiful. But I think where you really see the love of Christ magnified and shown forth is the book of Hosea. What do you do when you have, not a Shulamite woman, but what do you do when you have a Gomer? What do you do when you have someone who's not reciprocating these beautiful similes and poetic language. And so I just want to take you to a couple verses in Hosea before we bring this to a close. Hosea chapter 4, if you can find it. If you go to Daniel, it's a couple books to the right, or actually one book to the right. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, one book to the right there. How does God describe his bride? How does God describe Israel? God is the bridegroom. Israel is the bride. How, how is God's bride and how does he treat her? We see in Hosea chapter 4 verse 16, though we could read many other verses, just want to read a couple to you. This, this gives us a little context of how Israel is acting. God's bride. Hosea 4.16, since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? God's saying, can I pasture you? Can I lead you? Can I shepherd you? I'm your husband. I'm trying to lead you and guide you, and you're stubborn. You're you're not moving. I'm trying here. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. That's God's bride. That's Israel. Murdering, deceiving, stealing, committing adultery. Let me, he goes, let me describe how you guys are reacting to my love, to my care. I've shepherded you. I've led you out of Egypt. I've led you th- into the promised land, and this is how you're going to treat me? What's God's response? Well, since God is creator, and none of us men are creator, God says, I'm going to discipline you. So if you read Hosea, most of the book is judgment. Most of the book is I'm going to deal with you guys. But a big part of the book as well is found in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. This is a big theme of the book. Hosea 3, 1. Then the Lord said to me, this is Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Kind of seems out of nowhere, right? Oh, and they love raisin cakes. It's like, why would he include that? I think he's saying, do you know how foolish this is? 
Do you know how stupid this is? They're turning to raisin cakes instead of the God of the universe, the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, the God who has everything and wants to bless them with everything. And oh, they've turned to raisin cakes. So foolish. But what does God say? Hosea, go love a wife. This is what the new King James says. Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. She's committing adultery. She's left you. She's turned her back on you. Go love her. Go buy her back. Go pursue her. That's Christ-like love on display. The world there says, forget you. I'm moving on with my life. Christ-like love says, I'm pursuing. I'm wooing. I'm bringing you back. I'm calling you to repentance, to holiness, to purity, and I'm going to love you. That's what God does with Israel. That's what God does with the church, and that's the love that God's calling the world to. His faithfulness is never ending. And so he pursues in the midst of sin. How deep and faithful is God's love? As a husband is to love an adulterous woman, God loves his people. He loves the sons of Israel. He loves the church. And so there's just pictures galore in this text. Gomer is bought to Hosea buys Gomer. Scripture says that God bought you with a price. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. I believe that's just scratching the surface of what Paul is saying when he says, husbands, love your wives. It's not going to be depicted in a Hollywood movie. And if it is, they're just ripping off the Bible. And I was actually just I get a little sidetracked when I'm putting together messages, but I looked up shortest Hollywood marriages and the shortest Hollywood marriage was 20 minutes long. It was actress Jean Aker, Rudolph Valentino as well, another actor. They got married early 1900s. I guess they were famous back then. Never heard of them, but right after the wedding, she went into the honeymoon suite, locked the door. He followed 15, 20 minutes later, she would not open the door. He tried, he tried, and then it just said he went home, and that was it. <laughs> End of story. Shortest wedding in Hollywood. Pretty sad, right? 20 minutes, and he gave up. Husbands, God wants us to pursue our wives, to love our wives. And I couldn't give a message on marriage without quoting this from Matthew Henry. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. She's a co-equal, a co-heir. She's not to be trampled on. She's not to be bossed around. She's to be loved, to be treated with kindness and gentleness, to be loved, cared for, and you should be willing to die for her. That's God's plan. That's what God is calling us to. And one last point as I close. How does God get us there? See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon you that you should be called the children of God. The more all of us, but specifically men, the more we see that love, and the word see there means to see with your mind, the more you grab a hold of it, you know that love, you understand that love, you're overwhelmed in that love, you're bathed in that love, that love will permeate into the lives of others. 
That's our goal. May the Lord help us to do that.